You know, it's always uh, <clears throat> hard to follow a baptism, so I think we need to pray. Father, we come before you, and uh, as I watch those baptisms, I realized you're the herald. And all glory and honor goes to you. You are a life changer. Lord, you've done something that makes it worth making this kind of commitment and this kind of public confession. And so as we turn to your word, Lord, continue to glorify yourself. Continue to draw our attention to you. Lord, just use me as a mouthpiece. Lord, help us to block out distractions. God, help us to see you as you reveal yourself in your word. Help us to see ourselves as it's revealed in your word. So speak to us now. For your sake. For the glory of your son. For the deepening and the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever... uh, Decided you're going to try to do something, knowing right well that you're pretty well guaranteed that you're going to fail. Just think about that for a moment, because I thought about that myself, and asked that question myself, and I came up with a long list of things that I have attempted, I've tried to achieve, I've tried to attain, I've tried to accomplish, knowing right well that most likely I was going to fail. Uh, I thought of the very first time I spoke outside of my home church at a small church in Toronto. It was an evening service. There might have been 25 people that were all over about 85 years old, and they were sitting in the crowd, and I was convinced I was going to forget what I needed to say. And so I wrote all my notes on little cue cards, and I had them on a little stand, probably a music stand, if I remember correctly. And I was no more than about a minute into my message, and I, I don't tried to be you know, the preacher with the big swinging arms, and whew, Cue cards went flying, uh, and uh, I really had to try to remember what it is that I was going to say. But even things less important as preaching in front of a bunch of people, uh, fixing something mechanically. I mean, every once in a while I have a, a success story, but, but typically I set out to fix something, uh, and Allison will open the garage door and wonder why I'm screaming and throwing tools. Uh, learning to play the guitar. I don't know how many times I picked up a guitar, convinced this time, I'm going to learn more than the three easy chords uh, and end up giving, it, giving up because I can't. I think it's the A chord or the F chord where you've got to lay your finger across all these strings. I just can't do it. Water skiing. How many times in my life I tried to water ski, knowing right well I was going to fight the boat, I was going to hurt my back, and I was going to get a mouthful of water. And I could never, ever even get up on two skis. And so the list goes on and on and on. And it's things that I failed. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to do because it was way beyond my capability. Or I didn't have the right tools. I didn't have the right resources. Or sometimes people just sabotaged me. Uh, and I, I was doomed to fail. And you, I'm thinking maybe you can think of some things in your own experience that would fit that question as well. And shows like America's Funniest Home Videos and shows like that, I mean, they've survived for, what, 20, 25 seasons now? Because all these failed attempts have been caught and captured on video. And I love to watch that show. 
And I'll sit and watch it, and I'll watch people attempt to do things. And, and you're asking yourself the question, what in the world were they thinking? Like, why would they ever try to accomplish that? Because you know they're going to fail. And so it's, it's good for a laugh. At least it's good for a laugh for us uh, as the viewers. But failed attempts aren't always funny. In fact, sometimes they can be really serious. We've, we've tried to achieve something or to attain something or to accomplish something knowing right well that the odds are against us. Maybe trying it against the, the opinion of those who know us best, saying, no, it's, it's going to fail. And you've proven them to be true. You know, whether it was in pursuing something to do with a career or education or in finances, maybe in a relationship, in, in your marriage or, or, or in uh, parenting. And it's our experience and our, our fear of failure that can paralyze us. It, it keeps us at times from trying new things. It causes us to not bother trying to accomplish or attain or to achieve because we feel that we're doomed to fail. It paralyzes us from even trying to change. And I was thinking of that this, this morning as I was approaching this service for a couple of reasons. One, I knew that there was going to be a baptism. So Levi and Jason, they were going to stand up here and they were going to publicly confess their faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's a very good chance that Jason or Levi are going to mess up come tomorrow. And there are a lot of people who won't go through the steps of baptism, not only because the water is freezing today, but they don't want to go through the waters of baptism because they don't want to make that public declaration of their faith and then screw up tomorrow. And have people go, didn't, didn't you stand in front of Auburn Bible Chapel and say that you'd given your life to Jesus? Well, why did you do that? Or, or why did you say this? And I was thinking about that reality of how fear of failure can paralyze us when I was thinking about the sermon topic for today. This is the third week that we've been looking at Romans 12, verse 1 and verses 2, where Paul uh, explained to, explains to us what our response should be to the mercies of God. And this radical response, this, this level of commitment that he challenges us uh, to, to follow is to offer our entire selves to God. And we talked about it last week that a lot of us, that's our desire, that we want to have that kind of commitment to God. We want to have our life changed to reflect that kind of commitment. And we'll say it. We'll pray it. We'll sing it. Because we sing songs that repeat and echo that kind of commitment. But we know that in the last month or in the last week or even today, we've given examples and proof of the fact that, that there might be a very good chance that this kind of commitment and this kind of life change is impossible. It's not attainable. But last week we started to see how Paul says, no, that's, that's not really true. In fact, it's not true at all that real life change is possible. And so in verse 2 of Romans 12, Paul starts to lay out how we can carry out this sweeping demand of verse 1. Verse 1, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Offer yourself entirely to God as a sacrificial act of worship. And in verse 2, 
he starts to lay out the process whereby we can do that. Now, I know some of you are going, okay, I haven't been here last week, and I wasn't here the first week. Uh, and I believe the f- two weeks that we've actually looked at Romans 12, both weeks have been really bad weather. So let me really quickly bring those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about uh, up to speed so that you can catch up uh, with the rest of us. We started looking at Romans chapter 12, and let's just read, turn in your Bible to Romans 12, and let's read those, uh, at least verse 1 for right now. And if someone's got the Pew Bible, why don't you just call out the number in the Pew Bible? 920. Can you just keep your finger there, and we're going to be just looking at a couple of verses today. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so, five weeks ago, we began by asking a very simple question. What motivates people to make extreme commitments? And we looked at a bunch of different uh, real-life commitments that people make that are really extreme. But then I suggested that what Paul is calling us to, those of us who are followers of Jesus, this new level of commitment, we can ask that question of that commitment as well. What would motivate someone to make that kind of commitment uh, to God, a living sacrifice? And we talked about how sacrifice isn't a real popular word. I mean, it's countercultural. It goes against everything that the world tells us to do uh, and what the world uh, and how the world uh, tells us to be. And so we ask that question, well, what could motivate anyone to make that kind of commitment? We're okay with a lesser commitment to God, but this offering of our entire selves to God, what gives? What motivates us? Uh, and in Romans 12, verse 1, Paul turns our attention back to what he's been talking about in the first 11 chapters of Romans Uh, And last week I suggested a really good verse to summarize uh, what Paul's talking about is the verse where he says that God demonstrates in love his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see that in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul talks about how helpless and how hopeless we are because of sin. Because of sin We're estranged from God. We're not in right relationship with God. We're enemies of God. That there is a penalty that comes along with our sin. And it's a price that we can't pay. There's nothing that we can do about it. And all we can do is in mercy or plead to God for mercy in desperation. And what Paul says is that God demonstrates his love. That while we were in that condition, he pours his mercy and his love and his grace on us. And Paul says it's because of that mercy. Here's the reasonable. Here's the logical. Here's the strategic response. Offer your entire selves to God as an act of worship. That's the motive. It's God's mercy. And we do it not so that we can receive his mercy. We do it, we make this kind of commitment because we have received God's mercy. But last week we talked about the fact that that change is difficult. And that we may make this resolve to offer ourselves entirely to God, but we notice really quickly how easy it is to mess up and to prove that maybe this kind of change, this kind of commitment isn't possible. 
And I suggested last week, we, we could just close the Bible and have a really short sermon. And we could all just conclude that this kind of life change, this kind of commitment isn't possible. It's, it's not attainable. And let's just agree that that's where we end. That that's the conclusion that we make. But Paul says no. And Paul says no because God says no. God says no because you can be changed. Life change is possible. You can be changed from the inside out. You don't have to remain the way that you are. In fact, God's desire is to change you from the inside out. And so Paul continues in Romans 12, and we saw this last week, that there is a way that we can carry out this sweeping demand of Romans 12 verse 1, which is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to make this total commitment to God. And he shows us in a negative command, which is what we looked at last week, and we're going to see in a positive command, and that's what makes up the first part of verse 2 of chapter 12, how we carry out that process. And so we saw last week that the negative command is do not conform to the pattern of this world. And so we broke down that phrase, and we saw that to conform to the pattern of this world means to think, to embrace, to be influenced by the thinking of this world that has no consideration for the things of God. And we kind of looked even deeper at what the thinking of the world really is like, and we saw that it's things like uh, popularity is more important than holiness, that popular opinion defines truth, that holiness and daily living aren't related that it's me first, that indulge yourself, don't deny yourself, and on and on and on are just examples of the way that the world thinks. And so to not conform to the pattern or the way of thinking of this world means to resist, to, to fight against, to not embrace the thinking of this world. And we ended last week with some, some critical observations One is that if we don't actively and intentionally and continually resist the thinking of the world, it will shape us. And so we asked that really important question, and it bothered me all week. Because the questions I ask you, I ask myself. That question was, what are you filling your mind with? I was on the road for three days. And as I turned the TV on, as I turned the radio on, what was I filling my mind with? Very challenging. The second critical observation is that conformity is no small matter. Remember, we talked about the stinky shoes at the front door. A conformed Christian, a conformed to the world Christian, does have a major impact on his church, on her family, on her community. And then finally, we saw that you can't divorce verse 1 from verse 2. To make a commitment to offer yourself entirely to God is to make a commitment to change. And we saw that that change involves our mind. It involves a new way of thinking. And so we, we come into today. And maybe you left feeling pretty good about things as we concluded last week. That we don't have to conclude that life change is impossible. That, that w- 
All we need to do is change the way that we think. And I left you with some really great quotes. The one by Keith Krell. That presentable bodies are a result of changed minds. Or the one by Douglas Moo. That a new orientation in thinking leads to a new orientation in behavior. Or here's a, a real simple one from Pastor Stephen Cole. We act as we think. And so we went away perhaps believing that this life change is possible and that we can change our thinking. But there's a problem. Have you ever considered what the Bible has to say about the human mind apart from God's grace? I just did a quick scan of the New Testament. And here are some of the things that the New Testament tells us about the human mind apart from God's grace. A good way of summarizing it would be is that uh, the human mind is darkened by sin. And our natural inclination is towards selfishness and, and all those examples of worldly thinking that we looked at last week. Matthew tells us that uh, the human mind is filled with wicked thoughts. Titus, we read uh, that the human mind is defiled. In Ephesians, Paul says that the thoughts of the human mind are empty and useless. Colossians, uh, the human mind is easily filled with pride. And then in Romans, and this is shocking because we're in Romans. Paul says that verse 1 is is possible uh, if we just change our thinking. And yet in, in Romans 8, he says that the human mind is hostile to God. In Romans 1, he says that the human mind is depraved. And so here's the problem. How should we respond to the mercies of God? Offer yourself entirely to God. Well, how do you accomplish that? Well, first of all, don't conform to the thinking of the world. Change your thinking. Be changed in your thinking. But if the solution has anything to do with the human mind, how is it possible? If our mind is utterly corrupt, are we not doomed to fail right from the get-go? Before you give up, let me address the problem in a couple of different ways and to assure you that the human mind, apart from grace, apart from God's uh, intervention, is doomed to fail. But God's desire is to take us and to take our mind and to set it up for victory. Paul says to the uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He also says to the Corinthians that if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. You see, when we are saved, we're given a new mind. We're given the mind of Christ. We're given the capacity to think in a new way. Paul in Romans tells us that we're given the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who has the power to reorient our thinking in a new direction. So don't believe that you are doomed to fail because God takes those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and he sets us up for victory. And Paul says that in Corinthians. 
And that what I want you to understand about Romans, and this is not from me. Uh, actually, I read this, uh, uh, Chuck Giannotti's colleague, Bob Deffen- Deffenbaugh, I think is how he says his name. Uh, he points this out, and I think it's so profound. That Romans 12, the passage that we're looking at, actually is God's plan to reverse the moral uh, and mental decay of sin that he describes in Romans 1, where he says that the human mind is depraved. And we don't have the time to go through Romans 1, but you probably remember the passage. It's quite a a familiar passage. It starts about verse 18 through to 32 or something like that. And Paul says that, that God has displayed his power and his nature to the world. But the world didn't respond as, as the world should have in worship, but rather humanity responded by rejecting God and instead pursuing their own sinful desires. Instead of elevating God in worship, they elevated themselves in worship giving themselves God's rightful place. And Paul says that God responds to man and woman's sin. (coughs) He responds to their sin by giving humanity over to their sin. And so he gives humanity over to their distorted and depraved thinking. And he gives humanity over to their sinful passions. And so we ask, well, how do we get out of this downward spiral of sin. How is life change possible? How can we not be doomed to fail? And the only answer is found in the mercies of God as demonstrated in the giving of his son, Jesus. Because Jesus came, and I said this last week too, Jesus came not just to free us and forgive us from sin, He came to rescue us from that downward spiral. And he's come so that we can experience restoration and renewal and real life change. And how is that possible? That's what Paul then goes on to to display and give in detail in, in the passage that we've been looking at these last three weeks in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so we saw the first thing that we need to do is don't think like the world thinks. Don't let the thinking and the values and the morals and the priorities of the world shape you. But instead, and we move into this positive command, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing uh, of your mind. And the word for transformed uh, in the Greek is metamorphou, which is in the English metamorphis. And some of you are going, hey, that word sounds a little bit familiar. And for some of us, we really have to stretch our minds back to high school. And you remember that metamorphous is the process which describes how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It includes uh, gradual changes on the inside that result in a total transformation on the outside. It describes the process whereby a thing or a person becomes exactly what God intended to be. And we get that when it comes to a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You know, this creepy little caterpillar crawls under a leaf and it builds its little cocoon, and and then eventually out emerges this beautiful butterfly. We get the process of metamorphosis, of of transformation. 
What Paul's saying is that's the same process that God desires for all of his followers. That we who are hopeless and helpless in this downward spiral of sin can be saved and can be given the mind of Christ. And we refuse to think as the world thinks. And we don't want to be shaped and conformed to that. But instead, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ by renewing our mind. And God's desire is that each one of us will go through that process. That he can change us from the inside out. But change is hard. We've said that a number of times, especially internal change. And so what are we supposed to think about this command to be transformed? And I think there might be some here this morning, and you've already drawn the conclusion. The real change is not possible for you, especially internal change that involves the mind. Because you're stuck in lust, in greed, in idolatry, in anger, in love of money, whatever it is that has you stuck and chained and frustrated and failing to grow spiritually. In a way, I can't blame you that, that, that you've come to the conclusion that life change is not possible for you, that you are doomed to fail. But don't worry about my opinion. God says you're wrong, that you can be changed. And his desire is to change you from the inside out. And the fact that you are thinking about this and that you can point out areas in your life that you know you're stuck in, it should be proof to you that God is already at work in your mind, pointing out the areas in your life that you need to hand over to him and allow him to change you. And if we can get over that roadblock, then we're ready to understand what Paul wants us to understand about transformation. You see, transformation is a lifelong work of God for which we're responsible. And you say, well, where do you get that? From a simple word study of the word transform, the verb. I'm not an English major, and I've forgotten pretty well everything I learned at high school, but I do remember a little bit about English. And that uh, verb to be transformed, is quite an interesting verb. First of all, it's in the present tense, which means that transformation is an ongoing process. It's not instantaneous. It's not an on-again, off-again process. I mean, every once in a while, we hear of these miraculous stories where someone has just been supernaturally snap of the finger by God and they're a totally different person. But typically, transformation is a lifelong journey where we daily are depending on the Lord. The second thing about that verb is that it is in the passive voice. Meaning we're not the ones that are transforming ourselves. Transformation is the work of God, which is a good thing. Because if it was up to me to change myself and to change my thinking, I'd fail miserably. It's God's work to do the transformation. Which you might go, hmm, that's pretty good. So I'm off the hook. There's nothing that I have to do, but one more thing about that command. It's in the imperative mood, meaning it's a command. Meaning that we do have a responsibility. It's the work of God, but, but we partner with him. Paul, Paul describes it as 
disciplining ourselves or training ourselves for godliness. That's our role. And we get that when it comes to sports. If I said to you, I'm going to become the next world's champion in high jump, after you laughed a bit, you'd realize that that doesn't mean that I'm just going to go out and start doing high jump. I have to train myself. I have to discipline myself. I have to eat the proper food. I have to do the proper exercise before I'm ever going to have a chance of becoming the world champion high jumper. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to godliness, to being transformed. We need to be nurturing ourselves. We need to be disciplining ourselves so God can carry out the process of transformation in our life. And so what's our role look like? What's this this training, this, this discipline look like? The means of transformation is the renewing of our mind. You see, the battleground between conforming to the world and conforming to Christ is the human mind. Remember, we act like we think. Our mind is is, is the control center for our actions, for our feelings, for our behavior, for our decisions. If we are going to conquer sin and we are going to grow in godliness, we have to change our thinking. Have you ever renovated anything? The word renovate literally means to rip something old out and to replace it with something new. And and we've done that a few times in different ways in our family. We had a cottage where the whole floor was totally flooded. And we had to totally rip out the whole flooring and replace it with new stuff. The word renewal in Greek is the same word that we get the word renovate. So how do we participate in this transformation? Is we participate by renovating our mind. So we rip out the old, and that's, that's by refusing and resisting the influences, influences in the thinking of the world. And what does it mean in with the new? We saturate our mind with those things they are going to result in changed thinking. We saturate our mind in things that God will use in the process of transforming us into the man or woman that he wants us to be. And so what do we do? We, we listen to Christian radio. We read Christian books. We listen to sermons online. We read of, of heralds of the faith in years gone by. But the primary source has got to be God's word. If we're not saturating our mind with God's word, it's going to be really difficult to change for the better. We have to come to know God as he's revealed himself in his word. We have to come to know our propensity to sin as revealed in God's word. God's word talks to every issue of life. 
How do we think when we're hurt, when we've been cheated, when we're disappointed, when we've failed, when we're upset, when we're in the middle of a trial? How should we think when it comes to values and priorities and goals? If we're not in God's word, if we're not saturating our mind with that, it's like doing a renovation where we throw everything out and don't replace it with anything else. And we've done that before too. When Allison and I got married, I was already in a house and I was quite proud of the fact that I had furnished this whole house with second and third and maybe even fourth hand furniture. And we had a garage sale and we were going to be moving into a new home. And Allison thought that it would be great if we just got rid of all this furniture. And so we didn't just have tables out front with garage sale stuff. She had people going in the house and just kind of like just name a price. And by the time that day was done, I'm not sure how much furniture we had left on the main floor especially couches and chairs. But we moved into a new house with no couches and chairs. And I think we stayed at that new house for quite a while with rooms that were empty because we had no couches and we had no chairs. And I think sometimes that's what happens to us. We put all this energy, I'm not going to think like the world, I'm not going to embrace the thinking of the world, I'm not going to value the things of the world, but yet we we're not saturating our mind with but what we need to. We're not renovating. We're not putting new stuff in its place. But time's gone. I hope you realize from Romans 12, 1 and 2, that God wants all of us. God wants our body and he wants our mind. And the praise team's going to come up and we're, we're going to sing that song we sang five weeks ago. And, and my prayer for you as we sing these words is that you ask yourself, is there anything that I'm holding back from God? Is it my vocation? Is it my family? Is it my relationships? Is it my friendships? Is it my entertainment? Is there anything that I'm holding back from God? Because God is standing before you now and he's saying, I want all of you. Are you willing to give it to me.